Hello and welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. I first spoke to this week's guest two years ago when I was researching the radio documentary Women of Honour. She was one of that group of brave women, former and serving members of the Defence Forces, who had decided they needed to expose the bullying, sexual harassment and sexual assault they had experienced while serving their country. Two years on, the Independent Review Group's report findings were stark. They had worn the uniform of an organisation that barely tolerates women, where physical and sexual abuse were commonplace. There are many victims of the toxic culture that facilitated this who may never have the strength to tell their stories. Rosalind O'Callaghan has decided that it's time she put on record what happened to her. This is her story. I must warn you that some listeners may find some of the details she recounts here distressing. So, Ros, maybe just to start, explain to people, why did you join the army in the first place, join the Defence Forces? Yeah. Um, well, Katie, um, I come from a very proud um, military family. Um, my grandfather and my two uncles served with the 11th Battalion and the 1st Field Artillery Regiment in Cork. And ever since I was, you know, I can remember from the, from the age of nine, if I, anybody asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be like my granddad and my uncles. I'm going to be a soldier. I'm going to join the army. And that's what I did. That's what I did. And you did that. And we'll go right forward now to your very first tour of duty overseas. And you, you actually celebrated your 21st birthday while you were out there. I did. To be fair, on my work colleagues, they, they, you know, they made it very special for me. Um, I had the cake and I had the little party and they made me feel right at home. You know, so you were you were loving life at that stage. Oh yeah, I had everything going for me. You know, I had, I found the job, the career that I always wanted. I had a secure job, and and life couldn't be any better. You know, and I made my parents proud because I was the eldest of five, and I was the first one. You know, to get the proper jo- the proper job at the time. Yeah. Okay, so we'll roll on then just a few weeks after your 21st birthday. Uh, so you were invited to a drinks party uh, with another company off base. So you got yourself ready for that. I did. Um, we were invited to the local mess there um, for a few drinks and there was what's called kind of a beach party. But it wasn't where you get into your bikinis or, you know, your trunks or your shorts. Um, you just dress casually. And it was a break from the uniform and, you know, the uniformity um, lifestyle that you're, that you're used to for six months. So, yeah, we uh, got on the Sisu and we had it about 20 minutes. The Sisu is the armoured vehicle. Sisu is an armoured vehicle, yes. Um, and... Yeah, with my work colleagues, yeah, and uh, all excited and, you know, the crack was rolling and the jokes were flying and, yeah, I got changed into my civilian attire, as we call it, and in one of the females' rooms and uh, went off then and um, socialised with the, with the rest of the work colleagues. Yeah, had a few drinks, yep. And you weren't that used to drinking? No, not used to drinking, no. But I wouldn't be a good drinker anyway, even to this day. I'm still, I, no way, you know. Um, yeah, so I can remember having Tia Maria's milk. I remember uh, probably having bottles of Heineken as well. And 
I probably had too much. Not probably, I did. And I went outside to get sick because that's the way I can react when I'm drunk. I can get very, very, very sick. So, and your your friends came out and helped you and, and were looking after you. It was coming up to time to go, to go. It was. So they came out and one of the girls came out and she saw how ill I was. Um, I, I couldn't stop vomiting. So for about 10 minutes and I was, my head, I was dizzy, you know, I was pure drunken state. And um, you all pile back into the Sisu, this armoured car. In that Sisu, in that armoured car as you went back uh, while you were unwell, there was a senior non-commissioned officer travelling back with you. Can you just explain what you would have known about him at that stage? All I would have known is that he, he worked in the camp and that he was, he was invited to, to have a few drinks as well. But he was a senior NCO. I was a private, so I wouldn't have had any dealings with him at all. I didn't even know him personally. Um, only that he was a senior, senior um, rank. And the, there would have been an age gap a as well. A huge age gap. Um, I was 21, so I'd say he was nearly twice my age. Um, you would have, you were still getting sick all the I way was home. Very, I was violently ill um, on the Sisu on the way back um, to base, uh, vomiting into my own green bag, my own carrier bag, army issued carrier bag, and everyone would have seen um, the condition I was in. So you got back to base. The, the girls who were helping you back to your room couldn't actually open the lock on your door, so you ended up going to a friend's room and being put into bed there. Unfortunately, that lock um, always gave trouble. Um, so you just had to play around with the key for a while to be able to open it. But you weren't in any condition. I couldn't this. and the girls couldn't. The girls were trying to keep me up. Um, so about two feet, it's just straight across, just straight across the, the corridor. Um, I went into um, um, one of the girls' rooms. They put me to bed fully dressed, took my shoes off. I was very, very dizzy and the room was spinning and um, they put me on my side and um, I, that was it. They left the room then. One of the girl, the girl who owned the room, who was living in that room, uh, went into the, the bunker next door um, to phone home, to phone her, her family. The bunker was just a room that she... Uh, it's an underground room, yeah, where you go if you're under attack. And that's where, if you, if you want to make a private phone call. Yes, you can make a private phone call down there. Yes. So she was gone. <clears throat> what happened then? To the best of your knowledge, and I know this is the, the part of the story that's very difficult for you, but what can you remember about what happened? I remember waking up and I remember this man kissing me and on top of me. And I can remember my shorts been taken off me and my underwear. And I remember this man having sex. I describe it as if there was an angel looking over me, trying to wake me up and say, Rosalyn, wake up. There's something happening to you. I, I kind of knew there was something happening, but I couldn't stop it. I remember telling him, go away and leave me alone. But I wasn't able to fight 
I was, I was so out of it. That's the way I would describe it. I was just, I had an outer body experience. I did. I did. It was, I just couldn't stop him. This senior NCO would have been aware of the condition you were in. Absolutely. Well, well aware, very aware. Um, I am allegedly told that he took the green bag that I was vomiting into away to clean it out and brought it back to the room then. I don't know was the green bag brought back when the other girls were in the room or was it brought back when I was on my own in the room. But I do remember him coming back again and saying, Ross, Ross, I just want to talk to you. And I remember saying, go away and just leave me alone. And it was a kind of a raised voice as I put, you know, I kind of, go away, leave me alone. You fell back into to sleep. And your friend came back, had, did not actually realise anything had happened. Nothing, no. Then you woke up in the early hours of the morning. Half, between half five and quarter to six. And what, like, uh, how did you, like, what, what sense did you have at that stage of what had happened? I kind of sat up in the bed and I kind of, to, kind of looked around and I was naked from, you know, from here down. And my bra strap had been opened and my white top was still on with my bra. And... I put the shorts on me. No, sorry. I put the, yeah, I put the shorts on me and I put my friend's um, bathrobe on and I got up and went just straight across to the, my room and I managed to open the key and I went in and I was trying to, I was oh, what's after happening? Am I, am I dreaming? Is this real? What do I do? Could I be pregnant? Do I say anything? How, how do I go up to the hospital, the OPD, and say, I, I need the morning air to pill? What do I the morning air for? You know? And then I'm going, did that just happen to me? Now, you, you did pretty much right away alert somebody. Who did you tell? I told Captain and Captain and from that moment on, the light went out. My soul left my body and there was Rosalind no more. There's Rosalind here today, but mentally and emotionally, I'm scared. Say from the moment that you reported that this from had the happened From the moment to I reported it. I thought I was doing right. Now, your colleague, your, the officers you reported to were supportive immediately? Very supportive, yes. Very supportive. The female captain organised um, that I be taken to the outpatients department, the RAP, um, immediately to see a doctor. Um, so I was put into a car and taken up. It's only not even a minute's drive. And um, I, w I saw the, the, the senior medical officer then uh, mm. there and I was given, um, I suppose in my own state, 
and I've been in shock and upset and trauma and what's what the hell is going on? Um, I was given a morning after pill and then there was just military police everywhere and looking for statements and I was in no fit condition at all. And that medical officer organised for you to be taken off base by ambulance to have a forensic examination done in a in a civilian hospital. That's correct. They have they had no rape kit. So I had to be taken to civilian hospital nearby, off base. When I say nearby it's about an hour hour and a half's journey. And um there was a social worker there as well, you know, because of the language barrier and um yeah, I uh that was that was degrading. That was a degrading point as well. As you can imagine, I was very, very ill and the trauma was setting in. And and you had been sedated at that stage for yes, that journey. Yes, but um, I, re- I still remember it clearly. I'm going to bring you back now to camp. You heard that, 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 that the senior, we, we refer to, to this man throughout this as the, the senior NCO, the senior non-commissioned officer. You heard that he had been trying to make contact with you. Yes, apparently he wanted to come up to the the, the RAP and apologise and to see was I okay. You gave a statement to the military police. Did you have a sense at that stage that the the they were taking this very seriously? Yes, absolutely. Um, Katie, I was 21 years old. I was young. I joined the army as female. And, you know, I was representing my country. And I was representing my unit. I was representing my family. I was representing my military family. And I always had, I was always of the opinion that the army will look after me. They'll believe me. I've done nothing wrong here. How wrong I was. When did you dis- discover that he wouldn't be charged with rape? A few a few weeks later, I was informed that um, the test results had come back and the rumour got around the camp that uh, they were negative and that... Um, so yeah, let's just be clear about that. This is the forensic exam that was done in the hospital. That there, there was no evidence of any injury to you, physical injury to you at that time. Which I suppose is perhaps not that surprising as you were not in a uh, condition to resist what was happening. So, but, but that the word went around that there was no evidence from that exam that something uh, criminal had happened. Um, when did you hear that this was going to impact on what was going to happen in terms of the action against him. Um, I was told by the the female officer that he was not going to be charged with rape. There's going to be no charge of rape. There's not enough evidence. How did you feel when you were told? Um, Devastated. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. 
Latin, not enough evidence. And of course, I was scared. I didn't know who to trust. Because there had the you atmosphere see, in the camp that changed for you, right? Yeah, I was a private, so you know, I'm not going to question senior NCOs, senior officers. You just don't do that. It wasn't done. Do you think enough was done in terms of gathering the evidence to investigate what happened properly? In terms of who who would have had information like your friend that was in the room, the medical officer who you went to then who took you for that uh, forensic examination. Were they were they involved in that investigation as far as you know? As far as I know, Katie, um, the medical officer never gave um, statements. Was there enough done to this day? And I'm sitting here now and I will always say no. It was flawed from the start. There was a disciplinary hearing held very quite quickly within weeks of this happening, right? And he was charged, am I right with this, with a sexual conduct with an office or with a, a member of a lower rank and with being in female quarters, which of course is not allowed uh, when you're overseas. Um, and you had to attend that disciplinary here. And so I was, um, had to get into my number one, sir, called, you know, your best kit. And I remember walking across Tarm Academy and Camp Shamrock with, with the senior female officer and am I going to do this? Is this real, you know? And I remember standing outside the colonel's um, office and just waiting to go in and I really didn't, I was in no fit state to go in emotionally. And I had to gather myself and I was told, you know, go my arm or shawl, spin up your arms. And then start, salute. And I was stood he would have been just right here. Yeah. He was there waiting. You spoke up for yourself at that hearing. I did. Um, before the colonel said anything, I said, sir, I, have, I need to say something. And I said, that man, that's why I, I said, that man raped me. And he said, that's not the issue here, Private O'Callaghan. Would you like a seat? <laughs> and uh, sis, I said no. And I um, was stood to attention again. Umbrick Hart, Gumarmer Shawl, our salute, Umbrick Hart, Gumarmer Shawl. I, I went out the door and I broke down into the female officer's arms and I said, I want to go home. I say I want to go home. We can't do this anymore. He was, uh, Rosalind, he was disciplined in relation to those two charges. And for that, he was fined £175. And a severe reprimand was put on his record, which, as it turned out, didn't seem to Not affect his career that badly. No, he went back overseas, I was told. Ultimately, you came home. You you went to the guards when you came home. I did, yes. Um, I reported him to the guards. Um, 
but what because it happened outside of the jurisdiction, nothing could be done with it. That's what the cards told you. That's what I was told, yes. You did eventually. He handed you over 10,000 euro eventually. 10,000 pounds. Pounds yeah, at the time. For, as he said, counselling without having never admitted any liability, having never admitted this, this act. He's, he paid for 10,000. He gave you 10,000 pounds for counselling. You, you, you say, you, what did you think about that money at the time? Dirt. Dirt money. He denied the fact that he raped me. He, say, he keeps saying it was consensual. I was in no fit state to consent. I didn't know this man. I only know him as his nickname. But the only way I could get him to admit in some way was to accept that money. And, but believe me, that was dirt money. I didn't, I mean, I, I spent it foolishly. Kind of been bad for taking it. But you felt it so it was almost like an kind admission of him, for you. Um, admission, yes, yeah. Um, there was other things happening with your position uh, in, in the Defence Forces. There was things being said. Give me a sense of... Yeah, I suppose when I came home, it was very hard to adapt and to integrate into the unit again. Um, I became um, very isolated in myself, um, very lonely, um, scared. Um, I had no confidence, you know, I was paranoid. And here I am again back in the unit full of men. You, obviously, as you say, it all took a toll on you and brought you to a very dark place more than once. The first time in 2001, there was a suicide attempt. You ended up in, in CUH Cork University Hospital. You were referred to a psychiatrist in the military. That's Dr. David Dunn. And he... There was a diagnosis that you you weren't aware of for many years. What did he diagnose you with? He diagnosed me with a severe post-traumatic stress disorder. As I say, you and saw I was a very disturbed uh, young woman. This was not shared with you at the time. No, and you went back to your army career. I tried. I I I suffered in silence. Because if you mention in the army that, you know, you're depressed or you're stressed or you have anxiety, you know, uh, you're seen as weak. You're not seen as a strong soldier. What surprised me with this then was that you were actually deployed overseas a number of times after that, despite the fact that your medical record showed that you were suffering from severe PTSD. Yes. Yes. At one of those tours, you actually had to be repatriated a, a number of weeks into it. That's correct, yes. I, have you any sense of why they didn't tell you this when you were, when you were being treated by the, the, the military psychiatrist? No. It, it, I didn't know it was there, Katie. I knew 
emotionally, mentally, there was something around me. I became, became a different person. You couldn't say boot me and I'd end up crying. You know, I was full of anger. Hated going into the barracks. Why didn't they tell me? And if they had, then could have been treated. And I wouldn't be in, the, I'm in a good place now. But all those many years, I wasn't. I mean, I had a second suicide attempt. Recent, not recently, well, 2018. I couldn't take any more. You eventually realised in 2016, is it? Yes. You were again diagnosed with PTSD. So in 2016, I knew that, I suppose it got to the point, Katie, where I needed help. I just couldn't function anymore. I couldn't suffer in silence anymore. I knew for years and years that there was something wrong with me because I couldn't interact socially. I, I was just, I was just, I was just living. I was just going to work just for the sake of going to work. You know, I was, I, I felt I wasn't respected and I, I, I wasn't taken seriously. And now fix your mental health. So in 2016, I asked um, my uh, army medical doctor, um, to, to, to get me seen with, um, by the mental health clinic, not in the army, but uh, in Civilian Street. And, um, and they, they took really good care of you. They took very good care of me. I have to say that they were fantastic. Um, I, um, I was in therapy for, for four years after it. And during, it was during that period that you had your diagnosis again. In 2016, yes, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And that's when you got your medical records, FOIs, yeah. and you realised that was that like, was actually there for 15 years without you being made aware of it. Um, I suffered for 15 years in silence. You also got um, a message on Facebook in 2016, which really threw you. Yes. A girl female said that she was assaulted, raped by the same man who raped me two years previously. And this girl had also served in the Defence Forces? Yes. Did she tell you the circumstances of what happened? She did, but Katie, it was in similar circumstances as to my own. She doesn't know was her drink spiked. But it was very, very similar to my own situation. And she obviously had heard through the grapevine of what had happened with you. And she just reached out to let she, you know. She, she, she told me that she had reported it to the authorities. She's still struggling to this day. When you say the authorities, the military authorities. The military authorities, yes. The, the military authorities and the senior, senior, senior men and women. And 
this set you back a lot when you heard this? Absolutely. I, my body went numb. The blood drained. I, cons- I, 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 was, I was in a state of shock because not only has he destroyed my life, but he destroyed someone else's. And he still gets to walk the streets. Because ultimately he did retire on a full pension. Yes. And obviously his record will show that. But two young female members of the Defence Force said similar stories. Well, I don't know. I should say it about me. Because I reported it. I held my hand up. But I was sidelined. Telling the truth. For being a woman in the Defence Forces, for telling the truth. Now, Rosa, we've been speaking about this over the last number of years. While the Women of Honour uh, documentary was being put together and was aired and everything that has happened since, and now we have the the Independent Review Group Board. Why, why have you felt that you could tell the story now? Why was it important to you to tell your story now? Because for years, Katie, I've been scared. I've been afraid. And if you spoke up, you were told, shut up, you know, get on with this. And then I was contacted by a member of the Women of Honour. Out of the blue. And of course, I was, you know, oh, who are you or what are you? And but anyway, the support from those ladies has been Amazing. We've all gone through our own tough times in life. But we've held each other's hands since we all met. And I am no longer alone. I am no longer alone. I can now stand up and say I have. I have people who believe me. I have women who believe me and I have men who believe me and I am Rosalind O'Callaghan and I am a survivor and these are the women of honour and we are not alone. Never alone. And that was Rosalind O'Callaghan. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed on this week's podcast, please click the link in the episode description or visit rte.ie forward slash helplines. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feed when they're published or get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear featured. On Twitter, we're at RTE Upfront or send us a WhatsApp message to 087 677 1000. Talk to you next week.